Chapter 1, Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Stephen R. Gagan. Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881 by James B. Gillette. Chapter 1, The Making of a Ranger. The greatest shaping force in human life is heredity. And from my father, I inherited my love of the open frontier and its life of danger and excitement. This inheritance was further strengthened by environment and training and finally led me to embrace the life of the Texas Ranger. My father, James S. Gillette, was himself a frontiersman, though born in the quieter, more settled east. At a very early age, his parents emigrated from his birthplace in Kentucky and moved to Missouri. Here, after a short time, they died, and the young orphan lived with a brother-in-law. When still quite a youth, my father, with three other adventurous Missourians, set out on an expedition to Santa Fe, New Mexico. While passing through Indian Territory, now the state of Oklahoma, the little party was captured by Osage Indians. Fortunately for the youngsters, their captors did them no harm, but turned them loose after two weeks' imprisonment in the Redskin camp. Despite this first setback, my father persevered and reached Santa Fe. Here he lived several years and mastered the Spanish language. Not long afterward, the emigrating fever again caught him up and he journeyed to Van Buren, Arkansas. While living there, he studied law and was admitted to the bar. Shortly thereafter, here he moved to Paris, Texas, from which he was elected to the Texas legislature as representative from Lamar and adjoining counties. When Texas entered the Union and brought on the Mexican War with the United States, my father enlisted in 1846 and rose to the rank of major. In 1854, he was Adjutant General, Texas. Between 1859 and 1860, during the governorship of Sam Houston, my father was quartermaster of a battalion of rangers, thus making it natural that I should also feel drawn towards this famous organization. At the beginning of the Civil War, my father was beyond military age. He was born in 1810. But as the South became hard-pressed for men, he enlisted in the spring of 1864 and served in Captain Carrington's company until the end of the war. In 1850, a few years before he became adjutant general, my father married Miss Bessie Harper, then a resident of Washington County, Texas. My mother's father, Captain Harper, was a southern planter who emigrated from North Carolina between 1846 and 1848 and settled in Washington County, established a Dixie plantation with a hundred slaves. My mother was a highly cultivated and refined woman. On her marriage, she brought several Negro servants with her to her new home in Austin. Of her union with my father, five children were born. The first two, both boys, died in infancy. I was the fourth child born to my parents and the first saw the light of day in Austin, Texas on November 4, 1856. An older sister, Mary, and a younger, Eva, survived to adulthood. At the close of the Civil War, my father returned to his family, pretty well broken in health and probably also in spirit. His slaves were all freed and his land holdings, about 200 acres of cedar land, some five or six miles from Austin, and a track of pine land in Grimes County, Texas, were not very productive. There was not much law practice in Austin in the early post-war days, but my father set to work resolutely to provide for his family. Though I did not realize it then, I know now that he had a hard struggle. I was only eight and a half years old when father returned to us from the Confederate Army. 
but I remember he used to amuse himself by relating to us vivid accounts of his Indian fight and frontier adventures. What heredity gave a predilection for was strengthened by these narratives, and I early conceived a passionate desire to become a frontiersman and live a life of adventure. In those early days in Texas, there were no free schools in Austin, so my father sent three of us, Mary, Eva, and myself, to the pay schools. None of these was very good, and I lost nearly two years at a German school trying to mix German and English. I had never been of a studious nature. The great out-of-doors always called to me, and I found the desk's dead wood particularly irksome. When school closed in the early summer of 1868, like some of Christ's disciples, I went fishing and never attended school an hour thereafter. For books, I substituted the wide-open volume of nature and began the life of a sport and freedom that was to prepare me later for service with the rangers. As poor as he was, my father always kept a pony, and I learned to ride almost before I could walk. Raised on the banks of the Colorado River, I learned to swim and fish so long ago that I cannot now remember when I was unable to do either. I fished along the river with a few hand lines and used to catch quantities of gasparoo or drums. These were fine fish and sold readily on the streets of Austin. So I soon saved money enough to buy a small skiff or a fishing boat. I now bought a trot line with a hundred hooks and began fishing in real earnest. About five or six miles below Austin on the Colorado was Matthew's Mill. Just below the dam of this mill, the fishing was always good, and here I made my fishing grounds. I had a large dry goods box with inch auger holes bored in it. This box, sunk in the river and secured by a rope tied to a stub, made a capital trap, and into it I dropped my fish as they were caught. In this way, I kept them alive and fresh until I had enough to take into town. Many free Negroes were farming along the banks of the Colorado, and I would hire a pony for them for 25 cents a trip when I was ready to take my catch into town. Many times I've left the river by starlight and reached the old market house at Austin at dawn, spread out a gunny sack, bunch my fish, and be ready for the first early marketers. I kept up my fishing until the fish stopped biting in the fall of 1868. Confederate soldiers returning home from the war brought with them many old Enfield muskets. These were smooth bore and chambered one large ball and three buckshot. These old guns, loaded with small shot, were fine on birds and squirrels, but they had one serious objection. They'd kick like a mule. As the boys used to say, they would get meat at both ends. A day's shooting with one of these muskets would leave one shoulder and arm black and blue for a week. When fishing failed, I decided to become a hunter and bought one of those old guns for $3.50. It was as long as a fence reel, and at my age, I could not begin to hold it out and shoot it offhand, so I had to use a rest. The Enfield musket has the longest barrel I ever saw on a gun, and the hammer was so long as a man's hand. I could cock my gun with both hands, but if I failed to get a shot, I was not strong enough to let the hammer down without letting it get away. So I had to carry a cock to keep from losing the cap. I would take it off the tube and put it in my pocket until I had a chance for another shot. I remember once when I cocked my musket, I could see no cap on the tube, and thinking it had fallen off, I pulled the trigger. The cap had stuck up in the old hammer and the gun roared like a cannon. I was always sure to look for a cap after this. I did not make much headway using this kind of weapon, but it taught me the use and danger of firearms, a knowledge I was to find very useful in later years. When fishing opened up in the spring of 1869, I returned to my fishing lines, and in the fall of the same year, 
I bought a double-barrel shotgun for $12. With it, I killed quail, ducks, and other small game, all of which I sold in the streets of Austin. By the fall of 1870, I was 14 years old and could handle a gun rather well for one of my age. Earlier that winter, wild geese came south by the hundreds. I used to hunt them down by the Colorado River, 10 or 12 miles below Austin. The birds would feed in the cornfields in the early morning, then flock to the sandbar on the river during the middle of the day. There was nothing silly about these geese, for they were smart enough to frequent the only big islands, three or four hundred yards from any cover. It was impossible to reach them with any kind of shotgun. I used to slip up to them as close as I could and watch them for hours, trying to think of some plan to get within gunshot of them. I saw as many as a thousand geese on those bars at a single time. I have thought regretfully of those birds many times since and have wished I could have shot into one of those flocks with a modern rifle. I could have killed a dozen geese with one shot. In the spring of 1871, I had my first trip to the frontier of Texas. My father traded some of his Grimes County pine land for a bunch of cattle in Brown County and took me with him when he went to receive the herd. This was the first time I had ever been 25 miles from Austin. I was delighted with the trip. The people in the country, those big, fine frontiersmen, each wearing a pair of six-shooters and most of them carrying a Winchester, just fired my boyish imagination. Their accounts of frontier life and their Indian tales fascinated me. I wanted to just stay right there with them and lost all interest in ever living in town again. During the same year, my father drove several bunches of cattle to Austin, and I helped him on those drives. Thus, I began to be a cowboy my first step towards the life of the open upon which I had set my heart. In the summer of 1872, my mother's health began to fail, and my father took her to Lampasas Springs. The water seemed to help her so much that he decided to make Lampasas our home. At that time, Lampasas County was strictly a cattle country, and there was not much cow hunting during the winter in those days. The cattlemen and the cowboys spent a good deal of time in town just having a good time. During this period, I became well acquainted with them. In the spring of 1873, my father made a trip back to Austin on some business. The frontier had been calling to me ever since my first visit there, and now I took advantage of my father's absence to slip out to Coleman County, at that time on the frontier of Texas. Monroe Kuski and Jack Clayton had bought a bunch of cattle in Coleman County, and I saw the outfit when it left Lampasas. I was slightly acquainted with most of the men in this outfit, so I decided to follow it and try to get work. It was an Indian country every step of the way, and I was afraid to make the trip alone. In a day or two, I met a man named Bob McCollum. He was hauling a load of flour to Camp Colorado and let me travel with him. I bade my mother and sisters goodbye and did not see them again until the next December. We reached old Camp Colorado without a mishap in about five days. Clayton and Cooksey's outfit was there, loading up supplies for the spring work. I stood around watching the cowboys making their preparations, but lacked the courage to ask them for work. Finally, the artfoot started down on Jim Ned Creek to camp for dinner. I went with the men and at last got up spunk enough to ask Mr. Monroe Kuski for a job. He looked at me for a minute and then said, What kind of work can a boy your size do? I told him I was willing to do anything a boy of my age could do. He made no reply and we went on and camped for dinner. After dinner, the men made ready to go over to Horrid's Creek to camp for the night. The boys made a rope corral and began to catch their mounts. I just stood there like an orphan, watching them. Presently, Mr. Kukski dashed his rope on a heavy-set bay horse. 
The animal showed the whites of his eyes, making a rattling noise in his nose, and struggled so violently that it took three men to get a rope to hold him. Mr. Cooksey then turned to me and said, Here, boy, if you can ride this horse, you have a job cinched. I turned, grabbed my saddle, bridle, and blanket, and started to the animal. An elderly man in the outfit headed me off. Young man, he said, this is an old spoiled horse. Unless you're a mighty good rider, you'd better not get on him. I brushed him aside. Shaw, I'm hunting work, and while I'm not a bronco buster, I will make a stab at riding him if he kills me. By this time, one of the boys had caught the horse by both ears and was holding him fast. They threw my saddle on him, tightened the cinch, and finally, after much trouble, got the bridle on him and lifted me into the saddle. When I had fixed myself as best I could, they let the animal go. He made two or three revolving leaps forward and fell with his feet all doubled up under him. Mr. Cooksey seemed to realize the danger I was in and shouted to me to jump off. Before I could shake myself loose, the old horse had scrambled to his feet and dashed off in a run. I circled him round to the Bermuda and rode him until night without further trouble. I had won my job, but it was a dirty trick for a lot of men to play on a boy, and a small boy at that. However, to their credit, I wish to say they never put me on a bad horse again, but gave me the best of gentle ponies to ride. Our first work was to gather and deliver a herd of cattle to the Horrell boys, then camped on Home Creek. We worked down to the Colorado River, and when we were near Old Flat Top Ranch, the men with the outfit left me to drive them Remuda down the road after the mess wagon while they tried to find a beef. I had gone only a mile or two when I saw a man approaching me from the rear. As he came up, I thought he was the finest specimen of a frontiersman I had ever seen. He was probably six foot tall, with dark hair and a beard. He was heavily armed, wearing two six-shooters and carrying a Winchester in front of him, and was riding a splendid horse with a wonderful California saddle. He rode up to me and asked whose outfit it was I was driving. I told him Cookski and Clayton's. He then inquired my name. When I told him, he said, Oh, yes, I saw your father in Lampasas a few days ago, and he told me you'd come home and go to school. I made no reply, but just kept my horses moving. The stranger told me his name was Sam Golston. He said it was dangerous for one so young to be in bad Indian country and unarmed, that the outfitter should not left me alone and counsel me to go back to my parents. I would not talk to him, so he finally bade me goodbye and galloped off. His advice was good, but I had not the least idea of going home. I had embraced the frontier life. The Cooksey and Clayton outfit did not stay in the cow business long. After filling their contract with the Coral Boys, they sold out to Joe Franks. I suppose I was sold along with the outfit. At least I continued to work for Mr. Franks. A kinder hearted than that of Joe Franks never beaten a human breast. He was big of stature and big of soul. He seemed to take an interest in his youthful cowpuncher and asked me where I was raised and how I came to be away out in the frontier. As cold weather came on that fall, he gave me one of his top coats. It made a pretty good overcoat for me and came down quite to my knees. The sleeves were so long I could double them up and hold my bridle reins, and in one garment I had both coat and gloves. During the summer of 1873, John Histons, Sam Golshin, and Joe Franks were all delivering cattle to old John Chisholm, whose outfit was camped on the south side of the Concho River, and where the town of Paint Rock now stands. The other outfits were scattered along down the river about a half a mile apart. There were probably 75 or 100 men in the four camps and at least 500 horses. One evening just after dark, the Indians ran into Golshin's outfit, captured about 60 head of horses, and got away with them. 
The Redskins and the Cowboys had a regular pitch battle for a few moments, probably firing 200 shots. This fight was in plain view of our camp, and I saw the flash of every gun and heard the Indians and Cowboys yelling. One of Mr. Golson's men received a flesh wound in the leg, and several horses were killed. Two nights later, the Indians ran upon Frank's outfit and tried to take our horses. Bob Whitehead and Pete Peck were on guard and stood the Redskins off. We saved our horses by keeping them in a pen for the remainder of the night. I was beginning to get a taste of the frontier life early in the game. For years, cattle had drifted south into Maynard and Kimball counties, and Joe Franks was one of the first of the Coleman County outfits to go south into the San Saba and Llano country. He worked the big and little saline creeks and Llano and San Saba rivers and found many of his cattle down there. By the last of November, he had about finished work for the year, and gathering 300 fat cows to drive to Calvert, Texas, he left John Bannister down on the big saline to winter the horses. I passed through Lampasas with these cows and saw my mother and sisters for the first time in nine months. When we reached Bell County, a cow buyer met us and bought the cows at $10 a head. He just got down off his horse, lifted a pair of saddlebags off, and counted out $3,000 in $20 gold pieces and hired some boy to help him drive the cattle into Culvert. Mr. Franks, with most of the outfit, turned back to Lampasas. When he settled with me, Mr. Franks owed me just $200, and he handed me ten $20 gold pieces. It was the most money I had ever earned and almost the greatest moment I had seen in my life. I spent December and January at home, and in early 1874 I started back to Maynard County with Mr. Franks, as he was anxious to begin work as early in the spring as possible. When we reached Parsons Ranch on the Big Saline, we learned that the Indians had stolen all his horses, 75 or 80 head, and he had left only 8 or 10 old ponies. Mr. Franks sent Will Bannister and myself back to Coleman County to pick up 10 or 12 horses he had left there the year before, while he himself returned to Lumpasas and Williamson counties to buy horses. This trip from Menard County to Coleman County, a distance of about 150 miles, was rather a hazardous trip for two boys to make alone. However, we were both armed with new Winchesters and would have been able to put up a stiff fight if cornered. Our ponies were poor and weak, so that it would have been impossible for us to have escaped had we met a band of Indians. And this is what we came very near doing. There was no road to Maynard or to Coleman at the time, so we just traveled north. I had cow hunted over most of that country the year before and knew the landmarks pretty well how to go. We reached the head of the big Brady Creek one evening when a cold north wind was blowing. We camped for the night right down on the bed of a dry creek to get out of the wind. We saddled up next morning and had not gone more than 150 yards from the camp before we discovered where 16 or 17 Indians had just come along. At least that was the number of pony tracks. These redskins had hopped a skunk, gotten down, and killed it with a chunk of wood. When we found the body, it had scarcely quit bleeding. We saw moccasin tracks as if the savages had all gone off their ponies for a few moments. Bannister and I made the trip safely and returned to Minnetonka County in early March. Mr. Frank soon came with a new bunch of horses, and we went right to work gathering and delivering cattle. About the 1st of June, B. Clayton came to the outfit from Lampasas County and told me my father had been dead more than a month. Mr. Franks settled with me, and I started for home the next day. Upon reaching Lampasas, I began to work with Barrett and the Nichols outfit. They were the biggest cattle owners in that county and ran three large outfits, one in Llano County, one in San Saba County, and another in Lampasas. 
I worked with the last-mentioned outfit that I might be near my mother and sisters. I had now become familiar with most aspects of frontier life. I had cow-punched and seen Indian raids, but I had not yet met the Texas badman, the murderer and the bandit. My education was not long neglected, for it was while working with Barrett and Nichols that I made my acquaintance with gentry of that ilk. One day, five or six of our boys were sitting down in a circle, eating on a side of calf ribs. One of the men, Jack Perkins, suddenly became involved in an altercation with Levi Dunbar and without warning jerked out his six-shooter and shot him to death. And rising to my feet, I had my right shoulder powder burned. I stayed with Barrett and Nichols until they quit work on December 1st, 1874. In those days, cattle were not worked much in the winter months, so I spent the winter at home. By spring, I had become as restless as a bear and longed to get back to the frontier. Finally, I could stand the idleness no longer and told my mother I was going back to Maynard County to work for Mr. Franks. I reached the town of Maynardville in early March 1875. There, I learned that Joe Franks was then at work in South Liano in Kimball County, about 60 miles from Maynard. Wes Ellis had just bought the roof wind stock of cattle and was ready to start on a cow hunt. He wanted me to work for him, declaring he could pay me as much as Joe Franks or anybody else. So I hired to him for $30 a month, the top wages for a cowboy at that time. During the year I was at home, a company of Texas Rangers, commanded by Captain Dan W. Roberts, had been stationed over on Little Sailing. This company received its mail in Maynardville, and I became acquainted with this famous organization. Their free, open life along the frontier had fired me with longing to become one of them and join in their adventurous lives. In the spring of 1875, the governor of Texas authorized Captain Roberts to increase his command to 50 men. Almost immediately, Captain Roberts announced in Maynardville and in the vicinity that he would enlist 20 good men on June 1st to bring his company to full strength. Here was my opportunity, and I decided I would be one of those 20 recruits. End chapter 1.